All right. Well, we are in chapter 2. We're moving along in a snail's pace. We're fixing to pick up into a glacial pace, if that encourages you any. We're going to be in chapter 2. And as I told you, uh, <clears throat> the book of John has eight signs in it. And all these signs all are point to divinity and deity of Christ towards eternal life and evangelism so that we may believe. And so this book was written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ and that believing in His name you may have eternal life. And all of these uh, concepts and all of these uh, chapters are all going to point toward the themes of this great book. As And so this sign one that we're going to see today, the water turned into wine, is one of seven signs pre-resurrection, and then there's one sign that's post-resurrection, and uh, we're going to see all these signs as they point to Jesus being who He claimed to be. He is Christ. He is He is God in human flesh. He explains God in all of His fullness. And so we see this in chapter 2. And why don't we have... Uh, since I know Melanie's such a good reader, why don't we have you read uh, chapter 2, 1 through 12, and then if we'll have uh, Sheila read 13 through 24, and we will read chapter 2, and I am bound and determined to do chapter 2 today. So go right ahead, ladies. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Sign 1, part of eight signs pointing to these truths, water into wine. The purposes of signs in Scripture in the book of John specifically has a positive connotation and a negative connotation. Positive connotation with signs is that he may he shows through these supernatural events that he is who he claims to be. So is in a positive connotation, it is for his people that they will his faith will be developed in them, that as they see him and as they see that his that his omniscience and omnipotence is consistent with his consistent with his claims, this develops faith in his people. So as he goes through these signs, specifically his disciples, you notice specifically that it says in verse eleven, this beginning of signs did Jesus and Cain of Galilee manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As he as he demonstrates his claims of his deity, his disciples see his works. Matter of fact, John said of all the things that, that Jesus did, if I recorded all of them, there would take a library of books to record what all Jesus did in his three years of ministry. But the signs in a positive connotation were for his people and that his people would be strengthened in their faith. In a negative connotation, the signs were given like the parables. And why, why did he speak in parables? Anybody remember? Anybody know why he spoke in parables? And why he gave signs to the unbelievers, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the majority of the Jews? Why did he, and why is this a negative connotation? Do you remember? He spoke in parables so that they would harden their hearts. So seeing they wouldn't see and hearing they wouldn't hear. And so because they're not believers, because they're not His, He spoke to them in parables to further harden their hard hearts. Hard for us to understand, but He did. And He, and he used two similar signs. He used this sign in, in, uh, 
in this book when he talks about raising up the temple, which we're going to get into, and he uses a sign in in Matthew 12. He said, an adulterous and a sinful generation seek after a sign, but no sign will be given it except Jonah. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, speaking of his bodily resurrection and death, that was a... He spoke in these cryptic, parabolic terms, good word, parabolic terms for the purposes of hardening their hard hearts. And so he just gave them these two resurrection signs and these two illustrations to further draw them into what they want to do. And we'll get into all that in great detail. But then we see in this... Does anybody remember this recording? It's only recorded in John. And I believe, let's look at John 20. But these signs, there's a positive and a negative, And he uses the signs, even in his people, to rebuke his people. And we see this illustrated in Doubting Thomas. Remember, Thomas is one of the disciples And Thomas was not around after Jesus was raised from the dead and was in this inner room was he's having fellowship with his disciples. And all of the disciples were there except for Thomas. And the disciples were excited and said, we've seen Jesus. He's risen. He's alive. And what did Thomas say? So I got to believe I got to see it. And so Jesus uses this positive sign, which was meant to create belief in His people, as a rebuke to Thomas. Look what He said to Thomas. He said in verse 29, He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So He rebukes Thomas, although the the sign was meant to strengthen the faith of His people, but He rebukes Thomas because Thomas would not believe unless he saw it. And he, we understand that faith is defined by the evidence of things not seen. And so faith is a gift from God. And we, we experience and are assured of who God is because, because the Holy Spirit produces faith in us and we believe although we haven't seen. And we said, blessed are your eyes. That's the same thing he uses in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, are the peacemakers. Blessed of God are you, because you have been given faith to believe and trust. And so he rebukes Thomas for his lack of belief and says, Blessed are you who believe who haven't seen. So this is the purpose of these signs. And the first sign, and we know what Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 says, Jesus came to show a better way, and he shows a better way through miracles and signs to guarantee to assure us that all of the old and the new te- old the old prophets are fulfilled in Christ and so we see that so we see the purpose of these signs let's look at this miracle there are many things in it i've got some lessons from this miracle uh, from this miracle and let's look at them one by one and there's going to be some opportunities for you if you're big note taker note taker which i mean uh I see that most of you are pretty good note takers. And I know especially my care group is very proficient at note taking. Here we go if you want to write some of these things down. Uh, 
The wedding was most probably a nephew of Mary. We don't know that. We don't want to speculate. But this wedding uh, that Jesus came to, that Jesus and his disciples came to, and they came with Mary and her family, so we probably can speculate that it is a, a, a relative of Mary. Scholars think maybe a niece of Mary or nephew, so that doesn't matter a lot, but just that you understand that it is a wedding. We understand most probably that the bridegroom does not have a lot of money because he is not familiar with the perhaps the tradition of marriage. Perhaps he don't have enough money to fund the wine necessary for this banquet group. So we may can assume that the bridegroom cannot provide for his bride. And there's a great lesson, but the bridegroom can provide for his bride. So this human man may fail, maybe because of lack of money or lack of, of, of couth or whatever you want to call it. Maybe he's a poor guy. He wasn't, didn't know how many much people would drink or whatever the reasoning. He didn't have enough to satisfy the needs of the banquet guests. But our Savior does. He is the bridegroom, and He has the sufficiency to provide for His bride. A good little picture. Uh, One scholar said, and I do not agree with this, it's not in context. Probably in his exuberance, he says, and on the third day there's a wedding. So he says, that represents 2,000 years, and this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. I do not agree with that. It's not in the context. It's exciting to say, and it makes you feel all goose pimply when you say it, perhaps. But I don't think that's the context of this. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But uh, I thought I would give him a little credit or embarrass him, but you don't know who it is, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, I thought that was pretty neat uh, as I read that, just some different opinions about this. This represents transformation. This sign, the purpose of this sign is to represent transformation. And we are transforming from the old order to the new. It's similar to what Jesus talks about the old wineskins and the new wineskins. This water into wine. And what the symbolism is very important. We have... We have six water pots of water. And the water pots of water represent Jewish ritual cleansing. It was the Jews, because they cleansed, cleansed everything. They washed the feet, they washed the hands, they washed the face. And they used that to typify ceremonial cleansing. And so this wedding that was in Canaan, and these six water pots of water represent the old way. This represented Judaism. It represented religion. It represented uh, their misunderstanding of what, of what the law was about. They thought by ceremonial cleansing that they could be cleansed, but we know that the law can't cleanse, right? 
and the law can't make you clean. So Jesus coming in is good. This first miracle is a transformative miracle. It points to He is Christ. He is who He says He is. He is the giver of life, and you must believe in Him. It's very evangelistic. It has a lot of theology in it, but it's a picture of the old order to the new. So we need to understand the transformation, the old order to the new. The ritualistic system of Judaism, Jesus came to fulfill all the law, but He came to point to a better, newer way. He is a fulfillment of the law. And so He comes and He changes the order. And He has a better way, as in Hebrews. And He takes the old, which points to Him, and He fulfills it in Himself. So the water changed to the wine. That wine is a picture of eternal life. The wine represents His blood. The wine represents the kingdom of God, Him coming in. He's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that Matthew talked about in uh, in his book, the, one of the themes is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, this first miracle, purposefully comes in to change the old order and to bring in the new. And when he changes the water to the wine, he does it literally, but figuratively is the most important thing we learn from this. We are, he is expressing the eternal life in him. He is expressing his blood's effect and work, and is pointing to that. Remember, we re- we even this morning Terry quoted First Corinthians eleven twenty five. The blood is the New Testament. It's in, we remember when we took the cup this morning represents the new covenant in my blood. And so we see that. Look at other verses. They're going to point to this transformative work from the old to the new, represented by the water and the wine, and we see this in many passages. Who's, who knows what Second Corinthians 5.17 says without reading it? New creature, new creation. All things are passing away. All things are becoming new. Present active tense of the Greek. The old is passing away. Everything is becoming new, okay? And so Jesus is making the old pass away, and he's bringing in the new. Thank you for knowing that verse, Sally. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Hebrews Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, how about my wife, Melanie, read Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, and then uh, 10, chapter 10, 11 through 18. Verses that supplant or, or who uh, uh, supplement what this concept is that Jesus is bringing the old and t- bringing out the old and bringing in the new, the water to wine. Go right ahead when you get there.
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 10, 11 through 18. Everybody get that concept better, the blood. The blood of bulls could not, but only pointed to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And go ahead. Isn't that beautiful? The high priest one time offered himself, which was sufficient for the sins of the entire world. No longer does it have to be done on a daily basis, first for the priest himself and then for the people. But our high priest came with no sin. He came, offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people one time, and we're cleansed. Our consciences are cleansed through his work. These two verses, I'm not going to read them for time's sake. They all talk about the works cannot save us. The old way, the old ceremonial cleansing cannot save us. By the works of the law, no man is saved. No man is saved. You must come to Him in faith, trusting in His work on the cross. All of these verses speak of works and works that cannot save. He wrote the book of Galatians because the Jews who were converted were having a tendency to fall back to the old Judaism, the old way of life. And he's angry and he's got the war paint on. He says, I'm amazed that you would fall back into this thinking, okay? And so we see that. So all of this is a reiteration who He is. Beautiful verse here. I want to read that clearly. And it's a picture of this banquet. It's a picture of future glory. It's a picture of the nation of Israel being saved and us, the church, being saved. And I want to read it to you. And if you're don't, not familiar with this, uh, you're going to be familiar with it because I'm going to read it. 25. Six through nine. Isaiah twenty-five, six through nine, and this is gonna this is gonna help explain this transformative sign one. And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, Jew and Gentile, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of morrow, of well-defined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. When he dies, the veil is, is torn from top to bottom. He has separated. He has made a way for men to be reconciled to himself, and he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from faces, the rebuke of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken, and it shall be on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So all of this, this miracle points to these truths and these facts that the Messiah has come 
as He promised, and He is a fulfillment of the law, and He has come to satisfy every part of the law. Everybody get that? Hope I didn't take too much time with that. The second thing is that uh, He proves He's He's deity, and uh, obviously because He creates something out of nothing. He takes wine and water and He miraculously changes it. He changes the order of it. He changes the composition of it. And He takes water and He changes it into wine. It's a notable miracle. And He proves that He is deity and He is divinity because of this work. He proves His deity by His changing the structure of this and creates a miracle and we understand that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. Another thing I think is very important is uh, I, I, what he does. What did it say? These water pots, there's six water pots. And the scripture says that Melanie read each water pot held 20 to 30 gallons. So he had them fill up these water pots with water. That's a lot. That's 30 that's 180 gallons of water, okay? That's a lot of possibility of wine. And what, he, what one of my commentators says, he, he uses this excess amount to magnify the miracle. And so he takes this excessive amount, 30, 180 gallons of water, and he changes it instantaneously to wine to prove his deity. He always magnifies miracles to prove his claims. And remember, and if you know this, I'm going to be very excited. And I know somebody does this. Another situation where he did this with water. Remember this with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Remember how he magnified the miracle by the use of water? Somebody tell me what he did. Drenched it. Drenched it and then filled the trench around it. Right? Didn't need to put that much water, but to magnify the miracle, Elijah on the instructions from God did this to prove God is who He is and that He is separate from the Baals and the other gods and to prove that He's the only God. He's the awesome, omnipotent God. And so He did that in this illustration. He over-magnified it to prove a point. And so Jesus had them fill all six water pots with a lot of water. And then He instantly changed it. And He does that to prove without a doubt to the dull of mind that He is who He says He is. Uh, another thing I think is very important about this, and it contrasts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a pious, isolated guy that lived in the wilderness and had uh, ate locusts and, and honey and uh, had a uh, very crude appearance, okay, to speak truthfully. Jesus to differentiate himself with John the Baptist as an isolated forerunner of Christ comes and he mingles with sinners. He is a friend of sinners. He comes amongst sinners and yet is separate from sinners. So this is a good lesson for us as we learn from our Savior that we are not to isolate ourselves from the world and the wicked, but we are to mingle without being contaminated by. Scripture tells us to be separate. 
That is, it means not to be contaminated, not to let their, them influence us in a negative way, not, not to let them shape us. So Jesus mingles with sinners, yet He is without sin. So He feels comfortable. There were no doubt Pharisees, scribes, there probably everyone there was lost except for the disciples. Even His family was lost at this time. Remember, His brothers and His family did not believe in Him until later on. So Jesus mingles with them, yet is separate from them. A good principle for us. We are to mingle without being contaminated by. And that is a work of God's grace and Spirit. And He's the one that keeps us from I think that's very important to know that about Jesus. Now, the next thing I think is very important. Does everybody have this? We understand the purpose of this... Uh, the sign, and, and, and that's the main part of this, but there are several very important things that we need to learn, and that the Apostle John, no doubt, is inspired by the Spirit for warning. And that's this conversation with Mary. Lots of people don't understand how important this is, but it's very important. And uh, let's talk about the conversation with Mary. Conversation with Mary. They ran out of wine. Verse 3. The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, several things that we need to understand about this. First of all, woman is not a derogatory, negative conversation. And Jesus was not breaking the fifth commandment by dishonoring His mother. This was a common uh, uh, way to communicate with women in those days, so He calls her woman. We see that. If you think this is a negative, harsh reaction that Jesus has to His mother, it is not disrespectful But it is, it is abrupt. And there is a point in the abruptness, but it's not, it is, not, yes, she's going to say something, no, dear no, woman. No, no. <laughs> that didn't work today, does it? Everybody, oh, oh. Uh, dear woman, yes, ma'am. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Better than what Carol says. Hey, good. If you think this is a negative connotation, notice how wonderfully sweet and intimate it is at the cross. When he's talking to his mother and he's talking to this apostle John, whom he loved and whom he loved, his mother loved. Look what he says in 19. 26, hanging there in his agony, still thinking about other people other than himself, as he always did. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John the Apostle, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. So this is not a derogatory, disrespectful term. And it's used in other places. And for time's sake, I'm not going to go through them. But you see that. You see it in 421. You see it in 810. And I just read 1926. It is not a derogatory, disrespectful, dishonoring, breaking of the fifth commandment. But it is abrupt. Jesus wanted to teach a very valuable lesson to his mother and to everyone else who heard this. And that valuable lesson is that I'm sovereign in my time and I will perform miracles at my pleasure according to my timetable. I'm in charge. And I will tell you this. It was written to warn us about placing too much emphasis on Mary. Mary is not a is not a perfect individual who never knew a man and remained virgin all her life. Mary is a sinner saved by grace and Mary if she could see the blasphemy of worship of her and queen of heaven she would roll over in her grave. Mary was a humble servant and the magnificant which the catholicists have misinterpreted, do not glorify Mary. The Magnificat glorifies Christ. And what does she say? And we see this in Luke. We see Mary's heart. She's a teenager who is humble and who is overwhelmed with joy and humility that Christ would choose to be conceived in her womb. Look at 146. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is praise of Christ, not her. She doesn't want to be worshipped. She don't want statues in the front yard. She don't want people going for miles to worship before Mary. She would hate that. This was written to show that He is sovereign. He's to be glorified, not His mother. Okay. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, hence all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is on those who fear Him. He's shown His strength with His arm. He's done this. He's done that. He's done that. It's all about Him. And so this abrupt Yet respectable warning is purposeful to warn us against putting too much emphasis on the vessel. A godly woman, yes. A woman to have a lot of respect for, absolutely. Can you imagine her raising this child and to see that he wasn't sin and that everything predicted about him by the angel came true and to grieve for his innocent death? We can't understand what she went through as a pregnant, unmarried wife in those days and ages, right? Wouldn't even let her stay in an inn, not because there wasn't any room, but because they didn't want to be associated with this scarlet letter woman, right? She was rejected, but she was not disrespected, but he was abrupt to prove a point that he is sovereign. That phrase... Uh, uh, what, ha- what, uh, 
what does your concern have to do with me? Doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't concerned with the wedding, wasn't concerned with the needs of the wedding, wasn't concerned with all of this, but it basically literally means in the Greek, it says, what to me, what to thee. I know I have a role and I'm fixing to do what I'm going to do, but you need to understand I'm going to do it my, my timing, my plan, my will. Okay? Everybody get that? Any questions about his response to her? And it's tied in with my hour has not yet come. Usually he's talking about my appointment with death. In this context, he's talking about this what I'm fixing to accomplish. And it's associated with you need to let me be sovereign and you need to trust in my timing and look at her response. She said, whatever he says, do it. She understood what he said. She understood who he was. He's the Son of God. And she understood he didn't disrespect her, but he has authority over her. And she humbled herself and she says, in effect, yes, my Lord. Oh, unimaginable. But everybody understand that? If you don't get it, I hope you understand why he said it, what he said, and the point of it, and the warning it is to us. And if you have, we have several ex-Catholics in here, praise God, ex. And we do not worship the mother of Jesus. She's not a co-equal. She's not a vicar of Christ. She's not somehow part of salvation. We do not pray to her. We do not uh, worship her. We don't uh, treat her as equal with Christ. She's a godly woman who was a vessel that Christ came in this world, and she would not want you to do that. Okay? Everybody understand that? I think that's important that we get that. And... Uh, uh, Jesus begins to manifest His glory, verse 11. And this manifestation of His glory... Remember the prologue is going to tell us what the rest of this book is about. So this is verse 14 starting to be fulfilled. And and the Word and the Logos became flesh and the, the Logos tabernacled among us. And the, and as we talked about, the, the, the Logos exegeted God. He explained to us that we can conceive of who God is fully. He is deity. And then it says, and we beheld His glory. Jesus is starting to display His brilliance as the Son of God. Okay? So He is who He claims to be. And because He is who He claims to be, we must this is our responsibility, right? Believe. And we'll talk about that later. But uh, uh, this is a foretaste of God's glory. This sort of dovetails with this transforming the old order into the new order, the water into the wine. And then I want to talk about one other point. And this is something that uh, it's an ancillary point. Uh, it's not that critical to us. Uh, and let's talk the use of wine. And I want to just have a biblical understanding of it. Uh, the use of wine. In these days, I hear, uh, I hear people say, well, in those days the wine wasn't fermented. Yes, it was. 
but it was diluted between one-third and one-tenth. It is, it is weaker than it is today. But you understand, water in those days didn't go through fluoride treatments. They didn't have mass uh, cleansing of water. And so their water was probably similar to what you get across the border. And if you've eaten, across, if you've drank even ice cubes with a Coca-Cola in Mexico, you understand that you still have an adverse effect. <laughs> Named after Montezuma himself. So these days, similar purification, like Flint, Michigan today, all right? This is a joke. That's supposed to be funny. I don't guess anybody laughed. Use of wine. Use of wine. It was used, it was used because it was safer, it was fermented, and some of the impurities of water wasn't uh, wasn't uh, with it, and so it is. That's the use of the wine, and God prohibits drunkenness. Okay, Scripture is full of 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 uh, abitions, uh, uh, prohibitions against drunkenness. He talks about that, and I've got all these verses, and I'm not going to spend any time with them, but you can read them specifically. Uh, Proverbs 23:19 through 35. Who has woes? Who has redness of eyes? Talking about the alcoholic effects. Drunkenness is prohibited. Moderate use is not prohibited in Scripture. Is not prohibited. I'm your teacher, and I tell you, if you don't drink, don't start. You're not missing anything, and life is not better because you drink. Okay, for those young people who still have to make their choices. And then lastly, we need to understand our the rules of of uh, what do I want to call that? The, the rules of liberty. We need to understand that if we imbib, and if a younger believer who is not quite up to maturity, and if he is if he is caused to stumble by our moderate use, that we need to not do it. Right? We do not to take our liberties we have in Christ, and we do not use them as a effect of causing other people to stumble. But those are some principles of that. Uh, but you can't say that it wasn't fermented. Yes, it was. Yes, it was diluted. Moderate drinking is not prohibited, of course, but drunkenness is. But we need to be careful here that just because I feel like I have the, I have the liberty to have a glass does not mean that I should do it if someone else who is, who is uh, discouraged by that or caused to stumble by that. Yes, sir. No. Everything. 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 That applies to everything. If I like a good steak, which I love meat, and if someone is a vegetarian, is offended by my meat usage, well, I'm probably going to tell them to go somewhere else and eat, but I'm not going to be critical of them because they're a vegan or vegetarian. No, I'm just being funny, but... You know what I'm talking about. Rules of liberty. Uh, so that's uh, sign one. Any questions on that? Uh, any questions on that? And then there's another section, and this is a fascinating section. Everybody got this? And we're done with sign one. We'll get to sign uh, two next time. I think chapter four. The next section is Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, the, the, the synoptics... The three synoptics, Jesus cleanses 
temple. The three synoptics detail the cleansing of the temple, and it is at the end of Jesus' ministry, before He goes to the cross, when He comes into the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, before He dies on the cross. And so the synoptics record that as the cleansing of the temple. John records another cleansing of the temple. So we believe that there are two separate, distinctive cleansing of the temple. John records the first one, where Jesus starts His ministry, the first Passover He attends, and the others record the last cleansing. And they both have different points and objects, and they're different uh, lessons learned from each. I'm not going to talk about the synoptic lessons, but I'm going to talk about this one. Jesus cleanses the temple. So uh, uh, we understand that. And uh, uh, D- Jesus quotes different verses. Uh, but John emphasizes this cleansing of the temple so that Jesus again is going to prove His deity. And He proves His deity in many different ways. One way He does it is that he, uh, he is zealous for his house. And so he proves that he and the Father are one because of his zealousy for his house. He is teaching, he is teaching his people and the unbelievers. He is teaching people how to rightly worship him. He is, he is saying, in effect, to approach me, you must do it rightly, and you must do it biblically, and you must do it with clean hands and clean heart, and this is pointing toward me. So he talks about, he's gonna teach people how to rightly worship him. Now what's going on in the temple? They're coming to the Passover. The Jews have to come to Jerusalem three times in a year. Each Jew has to come three times a year. Passover is one of those times. So Jesus is fulfilling the law. He is doing what the law says to do, and He is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they can't get Him on that. He's fulfilling the law. So they're coming to Passover. What do you do at Passover? Why all these animals? And uh, what's going on with this uh, merchandising? They're selling sacrifices. Now they're coming from a long way, so you're not, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to be dragging all your sacrifices with you. You don't want to carry your, if you have a lot of money, you're not going to want to drag your, you know, you can't put them in a trailer or put them on a plane. You walk, okay? And so it's not very practical with big family to carry your cows and your and your heifers, whatever you're bringing to sacrifice or bringing a cage full of doves if you're poor or whatever you're bringing. So the, the merchants supply your sacrifice. Isn't that big of them? And so it may cost you, if say it costs you a buck, so they're going to charge you ten bucks because of the convenience fee and they're thinking about you, you know, you don't have to bring your own sacrifices. We'll provide for it, but they're going to charge you excessively, okay? Because their hearts are so corrupt. So as businessmen, they're going to take advantage of this and they're going to, and they're going to basically, uh, a hurricane's coming and we're going to charge, get you a room, but it's going to cost you five hundred bucks a night. Same principle, okay? 
and the corruptness of their heart. Secondly, they've got to bring their tax money. And so they've got to have it in a certain coinage. It's got to be a Roman coinage. So you bring your Jewish shekel in. We'll be glad to change it for you. You're at the airport and you're changing to, to a different uh, denomination. And we're going to charge you a bunch of money to change. So Rusty's in Rome and he's got to, he changed it with the franc and they charge the, you know what? The euro. It's all the euro. Right. But I'm going to give you your euro, but I'm going to charge you 32% IE. So that's what's going on. They're merchandising. They're taking advantage of these people and their costs, charging them excessively. And then they're even charging them to change their money into the coin for the temple tax. So that's what's going on. Jesus knows their hearts. Okay? And so look what he says. He says, uh, he drove them out of the temple. He takes a whip of cords and he drives them out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen, everything. And he overturns the tables. This is righteous indignation. I've heard people say Jesus was pacifist and he never got angry. No, he, yeah, he did. But he did it righteously out of pure hatred and anger at the desecration of his father's house. He's zealous for his father's house. And so he does this. The whip of cords didn't steal him, but didn't scare people, but his authority as the Son of God to be zealous for his self, and people understood that authority. They understood that power because they said, later they said, what sign, I mean, what authority do you have to overturn years of our cultural mandate? What right do you have? Because the law said you couldn't change something. So he comes in and changing the order, the old into the new. He's coming with righteous indignation for the zealousy of his house. He was going to say something, Ms. Sheila. There's a question you're kind of talking about it. But, uh, so the people that are coming and they're buying the sacrifice, uh-huh. you're not talking about their hearts as much as you are the people that are selling. Absolutely. The people that are selling. They're getting taken advantage of. Yeah. But yes. the people that are buying are being obedient. Yes. Yes, they are making, yes, they are making their sacrifices due for Passover and, uh, but the merchants are taking advantage of them. How can you go in and buy two turtle doves? How can both of those be firstborn turtle doves and unblemished? Uh, everything they're selling is unblemished. Because all when your sacrifices are They had a letter of guarantee, Carol. <laughs> I've never I've never seen that in a commentary that uh that uh the sheep weren't unblemished and the turtle and that very well may play a part in the in the uh right of worship of his house. And that's a great comment. Gold star. Yes. I believe it's it's both. It's literally his house, it's his temple, and it is also a spiritual thing. He always got to the heart of men, but he was very, very, very zealous for his house. And and I'm going to answer that question with this quote. He takes Jesus quotes half of 69:9. So turn to 69:9 Psalm. So Jesus, in his righteous indignation, says. 
Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Let's turn to Psalm 69.9. We see David's uh, verbiage that literally speaks of David, but figuratively points to Christ. And this is fascinating, wonderful, and I will thank John Calvin for his commentary on this. Look at 69.9. This is a... Uh, this is a messianic psalm, talking about verse 4, Those who hate me with a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Substitutionary atonement. This is Christ, the innocent Son of God, repaying and becoming sin for who knew no sin. Look at verse 9. Zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That is the definition of substitutionary atonement. I'm zealous for my spiritual house. I'm zealous for my physical house. But in the spiritual sense, my zealousy is proven because I'm so zealous for my house that I'm going to take the reproaches of others and I'm going to lay it on myself. You see that? Calvin said, uh, this is intensely cared for in the relationship in his father's house that he cheerfully laid down his own head to receive all the reproaches which wicked men fought against God. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is substitution. This is this. This is the gospel, right? And so the zealousy for his house, he's so zealous for his house that he says, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I became the sin bearer for the sins of my people. Are you stretching or asking a question? Yes, sir. Yes. Right. So if you're going in here and you're buying two turtle doves, as he mentioned, that has nothing to do with you. Yeah, you will give up some extra shekels to change it, but that's no sacrifice to me. I'm not giving up what's precious to me, what's, okay. what's valuable to me. So okay. I'm, I'm thinking that also has a lot to do with okay. as well. Okay. I don't discard that at all. Reader's Digest version of uh, sacrifice. Yes. Let's cut the corners. That's right. Excellent. Everybody get that? The importance of the cleansing of the temple, and especially his zealousy for his house. It is physical and spiritual. At that time it was physical, but it always points to the most important, the spiritual. And he is presenting himself as the one who is zealous for his father's good name, his father's, his father's holiness, his holiness, so that he would become a reproach to satisfy, right? So we see that. Any questions about that? I like what uh, MacArthur says. God alone exercises to right, the right to regulate His worship. He exercises His prerogative over His house. 
Jesus' power of spoken command was the effective tool, not the whip of cords. Jesus' deity was declared by his passion for reverence. I like that. And then he says, uh, and then he, and then he says, see Malachi three one through three. So we'll see Malachi three one through three, and we will see this. First verse is talking about John the Baptizer, as we talked about. He says, Behold, I send my messengers. He'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord, this is Jesus, whom you seek, will suddenly come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is, this is the one whom John the Baptist leveled the road for, as we talked about, right? And He does come into His temple to cleanse it physically, but to point to the spiritual cleansing that is going to he is going to accomplish. Anybody got any questions about that? Yes. No. No, I don't either. Yeah, he's criticizing the merchandisers who were profiting from the people. Yeah. It'd be like us selling grape juice in the front door. Right. Yes. Bottled water during a hurricane. They know it's necessary, but you take advantage of people. That's what they were doing. And he knew their hearts. And he was making God's house not right, right and he was bastardizing his worship. Yes. First of all, the wine was much better than what they normally would have gotten. Which is what? A picture of his picture of the better way, right? But also, if he had not filled all six of them, even though they were not all drained, procured, yes. That showed there was no other alternative. Somebody couldn't come back and say, well, you know. He just they held this one jar back for us. There wasn't anything place else to go get it. Good. So it was showing a completion of his sovereignty. Good. That function. You get a gold sticker too. Very good. I'm glad for this. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the sign. The people are furious. Verse verse eighteen, the Jews answered him. This is the, the leaders. Uh, all the other unbelievers, all whom have been passed over, multitudes of them, they said, what sign do you show us since you do these things? What right have you to come in and interrupt what we've been doing for years in here? Who, are you, who do you make yourself out to be? And what authority do you have to change what we've got going here? Okay, They were unbelievers, and they wanted a sign because they were a wicked and adulterous generation, and they didn't get who Jesus was. And they wanted a sign because they were cynical, and they wanted an excuse not to believe. Okay? Look what he says. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. So Jesus... He, he, they're demanding a sign because of their unbelief, which is going to be one of the negative connotations we talked about. Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to raise it up. 
they thought in their unbelief and their un, in their misunderstanding of the scripture. They said they thought he was talking about this temple. Now this isn't the first temple. The first temple was destroyed. This isn't the second temple. That was Zerubbabel's temple. This is Herod's temple that Herod started building in 19 BC. This is Herod's temple. And they finished Herod's temple about 63 BC. So we're going to say that he, they said, we've been building this temple for 46 years. So if you want to put a time number on that, we're talking 26, 27 AD. They've been building this thing for 46 years. They think Jesus is talking about the outer Herod's temple. And the words are, I have in your notes, and I'm not a Greek scholar, as you know, I probably butcher the word. Jesus uses the Greek word naos for the inner sanctuary. His body is pulled to the Greek word herion for the literal temple. Jesus declares himself to be God by saying he would resurrect himself from the dead. That is his divinity. That is proof, that is his claim that he's Christ. And this sign is, I'm going to give you a sign. You kill me. And I'm going to raise in three days. That's the sign. That's what we got to believe. That's what gives us eternal life. That proves these things were written that you may believe and have life in His name. You need to believe that He rose from the dead and died on the cross. And if you don't, you don't have life. So Jesus points to His deity by giving the unbelievers a sign which they don't believe. And then we... And then uh, we see this, but he was speaking of the disciple, temple of his body, verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. The sign positively for his disciples to believe, negatively to harden the hearts that are already hard. And now we understand 23 and 24. Those who saw the signs... Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. Superficially, they believed because they had an intellectual understanding that Jesus did something special. They had an intellectual understanding and believed intellectually of Jesus' claims. But get this, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew their heart and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was... Jesus knew those who believed because of external vision they saw, but they did not know him internally. It's going to dovetail with John says, they were of us, but they didn't stay with us, because if they would have been of us, they would have stayed with us. Jesus knows the hearts of men, and so... He knows that these people have an intellectual understanding. The devil believes and trembles. He has an intellectual understanding, but it's not mixed in faith and trust and obedience. So I literally, literally this says in the Greek, and, and this is point three two. Jesus Christ distinguishes between intellectual curiosity and God-given faith. John uses a word play which literally says, Jesus would not entrust himself to these men because he knew that what is in man cannot be trusted. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Right? Who can know it? And the answer is, Jesus knows it. So Jesus knows those who feign, feign faith by what they see and those whom faith has been given to them so that they believe and trust 
and obey. And there is a big difference. And all throughout this book, there is a difference between the first 12 chapters, the rejectors, 13 through 18, the disciples, the acceptors, true faith, fake faith. We'll talk about that as we progress to this book. I'm done.